0: Welcome back to the Practicology Podcast, this is episode 134 and I'm so glad that you could join us once again. In episode 49 we had my friend Thomas Seal with us to talk about the spiritual discipline of reading and learning and I was pleasantly surprised when that episode became one of our most listened to episodes, who knew that there was such an interest in growing more Christ-like through reading and learning. Well Thomas is back, this time to talk to us about the Doctrine of Providence. And I would love it if listeners showed the same strong interest in this subject, too. Thank you for joining us again, Thomas. Well, thanks for having me back, Mike. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, The actual word providence doesn't show up much in our English translations, Thomas. Uh, The King James, I found it there in Acts 24, verse 2, but it was in reference to Felix. The NIV has it in Job 10, verse 12. Uh, The ESV doesn't have it at all. Thomas, are you sure that this doctrine is in the Bible? And if so... What is divine providence?
1: Well, I am absolutely sure that this doctrine is in the Bible, but as you pointed out, Mike, the word providence as well as the related word sovereignty are not words that uh, commonly appear in any English translation of Scripture. However, they are theological terms which describe a biblical idea, a biblical idea which I hope we will see by the end of this podcast uh, permeates Scripture. But it is important to understand what these words mean. Sovereignty describes God's right to rule. God holds absolute um, authority in all things. So we see this idea expressed in something like Psalm 50, verse 12, where God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves on the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine." So we see God expresses that he owns everything. He has dominion over all things in this world. He controls and rules it. We see this idea also expressed in Nebuchadnezzar's confession in the end of Daniel chapter 4, where he says of God, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So you see, God is the ultimate king that reigns over everything. He has dominion over everything that occurs. Even a great king like Nebuchadnezzar cannot say to the ultimate king, who is God, what have you done, or stay his hand from anything. So God holds the right to rule everything. But providence is a little bit different. And I think John Piper provides a very helpful and succinct definition of providence. He describes God's providence as his purposeful sovereignty. You see, God has absolute authority in this world, but he does not exercise that rule in an arbitrary way. No, rather, God has a purpose in what he is doing. God is directing the entire course of history according to his sovereign purpose. And we see Paul express this idea in the first chapter of Ephesians. Mike, could you read for us Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10?
0: I would be happy to. I suppose I should be able to quote it because we memorized it a couple years ago, but I will just, (laughs) I'll just read it here. Um, It says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him,
1: things in heaven, and things on earth. So we can see in this passage that Paul says that God has a plan, God has a purpose for all things. And that storyline of the whole world is God establishing his kingdom. And in this kingdom, he's establishing a king. He His purpose is to glorify Christ in bringing all things under his dominion. And part of that great purpose is not only setting up Christ as king, but bringing in a redeemed people into his kingdom.
0: Well, I'm so glad that we get to be part of his purpose. And uh, you, you've said providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. That's very helpful. Uh, thank you. You've told us what God's purpose is, and and it is a massive purpose. It's a cosmic purpose. And is that the only level then that providence works at? You know, it's God working to accomplish this huge purpose, and so it deals with very big things, but not so much the ordinary details of life? Well, that's a good question,
1: but I believe the Bible quite clearly shows us that God... Um, is in control of everything. So while God's providential purpose has this mega scale, this mega scale comes to pass by God controlling and purposing every detail that happens in the universe. So God's providence doesn't just control big things, but it controls the very minutia of our world. We see this idea expressed in Proverbs 16:33, which says, "...the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." You see, there is nothing random in our world. Everything, down to every roll of every die, is decreed by God. There is absolutely nothing outside the scope of God's providential control. In his big book on uh, God's providence, John Piper cites Charles Spurgeon, who expresses this same idea when he says in a sermon, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Hmm. Classic Spurgeon there. I remember being at a
0: campfire with a bunch of guys and we were trying to figure out how detailed... God's providence works at and I think we were sitting on a fallen tree so we were debating whether this log in the forest was included in God's providence and I think it's pretty clear how Spurgeon would have answered that based on what you just said there and I I do happen to agree with him but I think some of the other people at the campfire and and a common response to this would be to think well wait I mean this just sounds like fatalism
1: Well, that certainly is a reasonable response, and it's a quite troubling question. But this view of God's providence is most certainly not fatalism. Because you see, fatalism is impersonal and purposeless. Fate is a blind, arbitrary force that gives no meaning and has no purpose. But that is not what God's providence is. In God's providence, God has a purpose in everything that He brings to pass. And that purpose is personal. You see, if you are a Christian... God's purpose is to glorify His Son by bringing you into His kingdom. Your fate is not fixed by some blind, irresistible force, but rather your every breath is held in the hand of an infinitely good and wise Father.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Fatalism is a very depressing view of the world, and we can be glad that it's not a true view of the world. God's providence of of things, by contrast, is, is a wonderful doctrine. And so you've told us what providence is, and you've given some support of how deep it runs, how deep into the details it goes, that God is providentially in control, even way down to the slightest details in creation and in history. But talk to us some more about that. Um, Show us from the Bible, Thomas, how extensive God's providence is.
1: Well, the Bible has a lot to say about the extent of God's providence. So first category is that we see in the Bible God's providence over nature. See, God not only created all things, but he continues to control all things in the universe. Uh, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 117, where he, speaking of Christ, says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, natural law is not something that God established back in Genesis, and has just sort of left the universe to run itself. But what we recognize as natural law is Christ himself upholding the universe and all things that take place. In the end of Job, in chapters 38 to 41, God challenges Job and asks him about his power to control nature. He asks him if he can control the weather, feed all the animals, and tame the most ferocious beasts. Even the terrible Leviathan is totally under God's control. In Amos, we learn that even the rainfall is controlled by God. God says in Amos 4 verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and on the field which it did not rain would wither. You see, God controls where the rain falls and how much rain comes. He can control rain to fall on one city and not another. He can even have rain to fall on one field, and the very field beside it gets no rain and withers by his providential control. And Amos goes on to explain that all natural disasters come at God's command. Verse 9, God says, I struck you with blight and mildew. Verse 10, God says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. Then in verse 13, he ends it by saying, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Amazing. So, God's
0: providence extends over nature. What about supernature?
1: Yes, we also see that God's providence extends over the spiritual realm as well. We see this quite clearly in the first two chapters of Job, where we see that Satan can do nothing against Job without God's explicit permission. And when God does allow Satan to attack Job, God sets clear limits beyond which Satan cannot go. We see in the Gospels that Jesus has absolute power to command evil spirits. And the demons recognize who he is, and they recognize his authority to command them and to ultimately judge them. And in his providence, God even has a purpose for Satan, in his purpose to unite all things in Christ. For we see in John 13 that when Satan enters Judas, God is using him as an instrument to accomplish his predeterminate counsel to sacrifice Christ as our offering. We also see that God holds providence over life and death. God is the life-giving creator, and he is the only one with power to give life, as well as the only one with the power to take life. And while the Hebrew writer does tell us that Satan enslaves sinful people by the fear of death, Satan ultimately does not have the power to bring death. Only God has that authority. And God clearly states that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, where he says, See now that I, even I am he, there is no God beside me, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And Hannah reaffirms this in her song of praise to the Lord when she says in 1 Samuel 2 verse 6, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and raises up. And not only will you die, but the very time and date of your death is providentially determined by God. Job says in chapter 14, uh, verse five, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have fixed his limits that he cannot pass. See, God has fixed the exact number of days you will live. And that is a boundary line that no one can move.
0: Yeah. I think we see this taught in Psalm 139 as well, uh, where David says, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. So, um, i'm just tracking with you here thomas that god's providence extends over nature over supernature over life and death and it's interesting to me that uh, this order that you're going through is seen in mark 4 to 5 isn't it where the lord jesus demonstrates his his providential power over nature when he stills the storm and then he shows his power over supernature when he confronts the demoniac man on the beach and, uh, and then he raises Jairus' daughter, showing that he also has power over life and death. Um, so, what else, Thomas? Where okay, Push the limits a little farther. Where else does uh, God exercise his providential control?
1: Well, We see that God also exercises his providence over nations. He has providence over the rise and fall of nations. That's what Paul says in Acts 17, verse 26, where he says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, God has determined exactly how far the boundaries of every nation will reach. He has determined exactly how long those nations will last, when they will rise and when they will fall. And within those nations, God also exercises providence over who leads those nations. This is what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.17, where he says, The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. You see, no matter what the nation or what the form of government it has, God sees to it that he controls who rules over that nation. And finally, he brings the leader over the nation whom he wants, but he also can control the actions of the kings and leaders of those nations. We see this expressed in Proverbs 21.1, where it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will.
0: Well, I think most of us who listen to this are... Going to be really thankful to be reminded that God is in control over nations and all these other areas you're mentioning. But maybe where we feel the pinch, Thomas, is when it comes to our own human will. We live in a day of expressive individualism. Some have called it the sovereign self, you know, where I am fully autonomous. Nobody can tell me what to do. And uh, does God dare exercise his providence over our
1: human wills? It's a good question, and this might come as a surprise to you, Mike, but I absolutely believe in the sovereign self. It's just that I believe that there is only one sovereign self, which is God, and He absolutely does exercise providence over human will. And we see many of examples of, th- of this in Scripture. We saw that Proverbs says that God turns the king's heart like a stream of water, and we see examples of that in Scripture. One example we see is in Absalom's rebellion. God causes Absalom to seek bad counsel. We see this in 2 Samuel 17:14, where it says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. God not only exercises providence over the will, but He can frustrate the wills of the wicked people. This is explicitly stated in Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11, where it says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, and He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of His heart to all generations. You see where people have their own will and their own plans, when it contradicts God's will... God's will overturns it. There's no such thing as each individual being their own sovereign self. If your will contradicts God's, God will cause it to be overturned. But not only can he frustrate wicked wills, but we see that he even will direct sinful wills to accomplish his good and holy purpose. We see this in the life of Samson, where God directs Samson's lust as a way to free Israel from the Philistines' rule. We read in Judges 14 verses 3 and 4, Talking about Samson's desire for this Philistine woman, um, Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. And we also see how in Isaiah, how God commands the proud heart of the king of Assyria to bring judgment to give against Israel. God says in Isaiah 10, verse 6 and 7, Against a godless nation I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So you see the king of Assyria, he wants to destroy, he wants to conquer. It's in his heart to go around destroying nations, but unbeknownst to him, it's God's providential hand that's turning his heart to do this thing. And as God is ultimately using him to bring judgment against Israel.
0: Yeah, so this is where we definitely start to get uncomfortable. Um, you know, just to take the example of Samson and his desire, his lust for this woman. And, and the scripture says that the Lord was in this somehow. You know, he was using this to uh, enact victory um, and free Israel from, from the Philistine rule. But does this implicate God with sin? Um, does God get tainted somehow? Uh, in in this Thomas?
1: Well this is certainly a very very troubling question but I think we can say on the outset that God is absolutely not tainted by sin. We see parallel to these statements about God controlling and even directing sinful wills. Parallel we see other statements that, that continually remind us of God's absolute holiness and separateness from sin but that still leaves us with this difficult question how do we reconcile these things? In his book on divine providence Stephen Charnock provides two very helpful insights for how we can understand how God can providentially direct sin to serve his holy will without himself being stained by sin. First, Sharnak points out that God does not bend our will to force us to sin. We are already bent. Sharnak writes, God governs his creatures to work according to each creature's present nature. He does not force anyone to act against his or her nature. He moves the will, which is an evil free will, according to its own nature and counsels. You see, I think a lot of the resistance against the idea of God's providence over the human will stems from a faulty presupposition that our will is morally neutral. It is not. Our will is totally depraved. So God does not have to force us to sin. We already love to sin. But God can accomplish His good purpose by allowing us to pursue what are our naturally evil purposes. Right, Right, so...
0: It wasn't that, you know, Samson really wanted to marry a godly woman and do things by the book, um, and God made him and forced him to do something sinful instead. Rather, when Samson went after that woman, he was doing, he was completely doing what he wanted, right? He was, yeah, he he wasn't being um, arm-twisted to do that.
1: No, Samson was following his will, but parallel to that, he was accomplishing God's will, even Mm -hmm. in his sinful desires. Right, yeah. And secondly, Sharnock points out that for God to govern a sinful world, he must govern sin in some way. He writes if we were to deny God government over sin in the course of his providence, it would be necessary for us to deny him the government of the world, precisely because there is not any action of any person in the world that is not either a sinful action or an action mixed with sin. The world is under the government of God, and he governs all, including sin. Therefore, God's government advances his power in the weakness of men and women, his wisdom in their follies, his holiness in their sins, his mercy in their unkindness, and his justice in their unrighteousness. God is not defiled by the impurities of men and women, but rather draws glory to himself.
0: Hmm. Well, that is a few seconds of content that is worth listening to and thinking through again. It is a very insightful point uh, from Sharnak, and thank you. And and so, we've seen that the Bible teaches us this, and you've given us some helpful answers there from Sharnak. Um, but maybe you could simplify it a little further, Thomas, or, or is there an illustration you can give us just to help us come to terms with this difficult truth?
1: Well, John Piper, in his typical excellence at communication, provides what I think is a very helpful illustration. And he points out that that we finite human beings can handle radioactive material to, use, to make it into a useful energy without being contaminated by this deadly radiation. So how much more could an infinitely wise God handle the evil of sin without it contaminating him or harming his holy purposes? And so too, we finite human beings can handle lethal viruses to produce good and helpful vaccines without us being infected by the virus. And if we can do that, how much more can an infinitely wise and good God handle the awful disease of sin without himself being affected?
0: Alright, so you have given us a whirlwind tour of what providence is and how extensive it is, and how God exercises providential control over all things from nature to the spirit world to birth and death and nations and even the human will. And my reaction to all this is, is that I'm amazed. Um, these truths lead me to worship. And I think it's safe though, to say that not everyone reacts this way though. Um, maybe someone listening is saying, well, if all this is true, uh, I guess my actions in life are just meaningless. I mean, it doesn't matter what I do. So, so does it matter, Thomas? Does this doctrine, in other words, does it help us in practical living
1: Well, I think this doctrine is immensely practical. And you mentioned one possible wrong turn we could make. And I think there there are two ditches. One is the one you mentioned that we just throw our hands up and say, well, our life is meaningless. Nothing we do means anything because God has providentially determined it. But the other ditch we could fall into is, is say, well, this frees me from all responsibility. I can go do whatever I want. Well, since God's will is, is directing mine, I can. it frees me from any responsibility. But those, both those ditches are the ditch of fatalism, that there's this purposeless force driving us, but that is not God's providence. God's providence is purposeful, and an understanding of God's providence should absolutely change how we live. Rather than creating apathy or making us feel as though our lives and actions are meaningless, understanding God's providence should encourage us to live faithfully. I found it quite striking that at the end of his book on divine providence, Stephen Charnock devotes the last chapter to ten practical applications on how God's providence should affect and change our lives. I'd just like to consider four of them in the conclusion of this podcast. The first application he points out that in light of God's providence, We should not fear the enemies of the church. We have seen that God orders all things. His providence is not arbitrary, but it's purposeful. And part of that purpose is the good of His people. And so God's providence gives us security to know that we can always trust His care for us. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, God's providence should encourage us, no matter what threat we find against us, whether natural or supernatural, that God is providentially caring for us. And Stephen Sharnock has some very strong words about people who distrust God's providential care for them. He says, we vilify God and defile His glory when our fear of human power stifles out our faith in God. He commands, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, you, him shall you fear. It's Isaiah eight twelve to 13. So, Sharnot goes on and says, Let the wicked fear their adversaries and engage in an alliance with them. But let your eyes be lifted up to the Lord and his providence.
0: Yeah, so whether we're thinking of human enemies of the church, you know, uh, actors working here on earth or in the supernatural realm, we need
1: not fear any threat to the church. God is sovereign. Absolutely. Sharnak's second application is that we are not to censure God. And that means that we are not in a position to judge God's ways even when we don't understand them, even when they don't make sense. We're not in a position to question God. And we're in no position to demand an explanation from God when he acts in a way that we don't like or we don't understand. You see, what we all will experience what the Puritans called God's dark providences, times when it may often seem that God is in the wrong or doing something that we don't understand and we experience great pain and trial or suffering. But even in those dark times, we must always remember that God is righteous, wise, and good in everything He does. And everything He is doing is ultimately working for your good. And so, we cannot see all His ways. We cannot understand the intricacies of a situation or see the future effects that God is bringing about. And so we are not in a position to counsel God and to explain to him how he ought to be acting or to question his providential actions or even to correct his actions. We feel that he has stepped off course or is in the wrong. Sharnak writes and says, a single thread of providence may seem very weak, naughty, and uneven, thus seeming to give us a just reason to censure his work. Oh, but it will be joyous to see all the threads woven into a marvelous, intricately braided work.
0: Yeah, and if I can just pick up on something there, Thomas, it's true. God does not owe us an explanation. Um, And yet, I do think in the laments of Scripture, we see that a godly response to extreme suffering in our lives can be to still ask him why, you know? Um, Why, Lord? Why, Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through such a shadow right now? But... Uh, that that's that's a far cry from demanding God to give me an explanation.
1: Absolutely. You know, we see many examples of people asking why, and we can ask that, but we are not to tr- not to try to counsel God and explain what he did wrong in our lives. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Sharnak's third application is to remember past providences. You now, Often in times of difficulty, it's very helpful to remember God's providential care in the past. We see this modeled for us frequently in the Psalms. The psalmist will find himself in the midst of some trial or difficulty, but then he will look back and recite all the different times when God has delivered his people in the past. And remembering God's care in the past is the means by which he finds the confidence in God's care for his present distress.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we, we, you see this almost in, in real time in some of the psalms where it's when he looks back that he, he kind of gets himself out of the hole he's in and so, uh, this, this would just, I mean, I think this is very simple, Thomas, but just to emphasize it, we do need to take time to purposefully look back and remember God's past goodness to us.
1: And finally, the last application we'll look at today is, Sharnock says, live in faith, knowing God's providence. See, a belief in God's providence is not an excuse for apathy, but rather it is a firm foundation on which we can build our lives confident of God's care as we seek to live faithful lives. You see, God has given us commands and we are expected to live by his commands. But it is our comfort to know as we seek to live faithful lives that God's hand of providence um, directs all things in our lives. Sharnock uh, writes and says, we are to do our duty, which is faith and hope, and leave God to do his work, which is mercy and kindness. And we see this sort of summarized in Psalm 33, verse 18, which says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Thomas, for defining providence and scoping out its extent, and then finishing with these four applications. We need not fear attacks on the church. We shouldn't censure God or judge him, counsel him. Uh, To remember past providence, deliberately go digging up his past providence in our lives. And then finally, to live in faith, knowing God is in control. The eye of the Lord is on those of us who
1: fear him. Thomas, do you have anything more to say about Providence? Well, I have a lot to say about Providence. I could probably fill a number of podcast episodes, <laughs> but I think your, your listeners would tire of that quite quickly.
0: Well, well I'll make you a deal. I'll, I'll give you one more. And so listeners, do be sure to tune in two weeks from now, because in uh, this one, I'm, I'm really looking forward to. We're going to dive into the subject of how providence interacts with the Christian life. And it is wonderful, wonderful truth for us to live our Christian lives by. And so until then, remember the Lord is in control. God bless you all.